And I don't think we had any inkling of how powerful that idea would be or how well AI could do the job. You know, we thought it would just be an initial rough skeleton that you could use just to sort of show you what our product could do. It would mix in kind of all the different bits. And we started working on that. And the thing that we found was that it could do much better than we expected. It actually generate a full presentation and find images and sort of create layouts. It became this really powerful way of showcasing all of the sort of building blocks we built up over the previous two or three years. But then kind of what amazed us was that many people considered that a finished product. They would say, oh, you have basically made my whole presentation for me. And like, yes, I'll finesse it here or there, but you've now taken this task that would have taken me, you know, like 10 or 20 hours of preparation and you've done 90% of it. That is kind of probably always the mission we wanted to achieve. If you think back of like, oh, your presentation through tomorrow, how do we solve it? But it never occurred to us that AI could solve so many of the pieces of it along the way. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is John Nerona, co-founder of Gamma an AI-powered presentation and website creation tool that invites users to just start writing, promising beautiful, engaging content with none of the formatting and design work. Now, as recently as a few years ago, right up until the point when John was starting Gamma, actually, it was generally agreed that AI would first automate manual labor, then maybe knowledge work, and then maybe last of all, if ever, creativity. But as it turns out, Creative technology has actually been one of the very first markets to be affected by generative AI, and I've been thinking a lot about why that is. Reflecting on this conversation with John, a few things definitely jump out. First, the blank page problem is real. People are often at a loss for creative ideas. GPT-3 level LLMs were not super powerful, but they were capable of brainstorming creative concepts at lightning speed. And simply helping people get unstuck and into the creative mode can itself be super valuable. Second, no matter how hard you work on a software UI, many people find the process of learning to use new software tools so frustrating that they'd rather not even try at all. Yet, many of those same people are happy to simply say what they want in plain language. And if the tool is smart enough to get them and to produce something decent that they actually like, then you have an opportunity to draw them in. And third, it's okay in a creative context if the AI sometimes gets things wrong. Even today, while AI tools have become more reliable for routine work, they still rarely nail creative tasks on the first try. For example, I generated the first version of this essay with Claude 2, but then I ended up rewriting the entire thing myself. That doesn't mean, though, that it was pointless to use AI. By a Getting the approximate structure on the page, in the slides, or in the video, as the context may be, AI makes it anywhere from two to 10 times faster to accomplish the end goal. And what that means in practice is that AI empowers people to make things that they simply couldn't and wouldn't otherwise make. As you hear, I invited John on the show because I recently did a search for the best AI-first slide maker and I found that Gamma was the very best tool that I tried. And I had a ton of fun talking shop with John in this conversation. 
As founders of creative technology companies in the generative AI era, we've recognized and embraced many of the same opportunities, and we've also faced many similar challenges. We get super practical talking about which models we use to maximize performance, which tools we use to measure and monitor production results, which approaches we use to collect user feedback, and what strategies we're betting on to ride the AI wave more nimbly than our competitors, who just happen to be some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a builder or just curious about how the AI products you use every day are built, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Of course, if you are enjoying the show, we always appreciate it when you share an episode on social media with your friends or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a comment on YouTube. And we always welcome your feedback. You can email us anytime at tcr at turpentine.co or you can DM me on the all-new x.com where I am still at Labenz. Now, here's my conversation with John Narona, co-founder of Gamma. John Narona, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Great to be here. So we're here because uh, not too long ago, I um, was doing this little workshop that I call Savvy Shopping for AI Products with a group of, I'd say, 100 uh, executive assistants that I'm training to use AI tools of all sorts. And one of the things I try to teach them how to do is identify, like, which are the good products and, you know, which ones are kind of just thin wrappers, you know, whatever you want to call them, are just not good. So in front of this group, I did a search for the best AI slide maker that I could find, starting uh, as I often do these days with perplexity and asking it to tell me what the best, uh, you know, most highly rated AI slide makers are. And then I actually just, you know, tested a bunch of them live in front of the group. And it was a pretty unanimous uh, agreement across the group that yours, which is Gamma, was the uh, most successful and most likely to be adopted AI slide maker. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then I figured, well, hey, let's do uh, a podcast and, and learn more about it. That's awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Perplexity, and thank you, the Army of EAs, for uh, rating us that way. That's great to hear. It's a cool experience. It's at least getting toward what people sort of imagine the the future to be like. So I'm really interested to unpack, you know, some of the decisions that you've made and the way you've got about building the product. Because for starters, though, just love to contextualize where you are and kind of how the company and AI, you know, related to each other at the beginning. If I understand correctly, just from kind of checking you guys out online and and trying to figure out the timeline. It seems like you started building this product before there was like clear line of sight to it being a heavily AI driven product. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, how, tell me where you started, like what the original motivation was and what role AI played in that and, and how things have changed as you've been building. Yeah, totally. Um, it was certainly not our original sort of goal or plan, uh, mainly because when we started the company, AI was not all that good yet. So we started the company in 2020, right in the depths of the pandemic and We've kind of made our own zigzag through the sort of idea maze, deciding what our core focus would be. But always sort of the meat of it was we wanted to build the anti-PowerPoint. And what I mean by that is if I tell you that, hey, Nathan, tomorrow you have a huge PowerPoint presentation to present, it's high stakes, get it ready. Do you feel a thrill of excitement or do you feel a like cringe of ick at that thought? And for most people, it's the ick <laughs> that they feel. And there's any number of reasons for that. Not all of them PowerPoint the software's fault. It's the nervousness of public speaking and presenting. It's having your work judged like a book by its cover rather than by you know, the quality of your ideas. 
all of those things are sort of part of the core presentation experience. But there's also a lot that comes from the software and maybe more than that, the format or the medium of a presentation. It's visual communication, which is something that most of us don't really learn to do very much in school or in the rest of our career. I have to basically make a high stakes, good looking thing using tools I'm not super familiar with to drag boxes around, basically. Uh, the format itself is highly linear, so I have to really plan out and thoughtfully execute a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And then basically I have to fill a bunch of rectangles, and they're all kind of the same size and shape. And so I often have to warp my ideas to fit on that rectangle. That might mean you know finding clip art to go on one side, or it might mean cutting down my text to fit on two slides or whatever it is. And so our mission was like, let's see how we can just rethink all of that by building both a better way to make presentations and also a new medium that was an alternative to the typical slide deck. So combining elements of the document and the slide together, or combining even interactive elements like a web page would have into slides. It didn't even really occur to us at the start that AI would have a major role to play here. In fact, I tried using GPT-3 back in 2020, we started the company to do some pieces of this and it just couldn't, the technology wasn't there. And I don't think any of us realized how far it would accelerate in the last few years to be able to contribute until now when it does in a major way. It's funny, I've kind of lived a, a somewhat parallel life, I think, in building my own company and product at Waymark. Listeners know this, but just for your background, I was the founder and CEO there for a long time and then became totally obsessed with everything AI about two years ago, uh, which I'd always been interested in, but you know, hadn't really fully committed you know, my intellectual uh, uh, effort to. And now I'm you know, just all AI. Unfortunately, I had a good friend and teammate who was able to take over for me as CEO. But you know, similar kind of thing where we were like, in our case, it's video. People need to communicate with video. You know, there's all of these different placements. You know, our, our typical audience is small business. Sounds like your audience is more kind of general, white collar, professional. But you know, people have to communicate in this way, and it's not something they really know how to do, and you know, it's hard even for professionals, but it's basically impossible for amateurs in the, the case of video. Well, TikTok shows that talented amateurs can do it, but you know, that's still a pretty small percentage of people. So it's hard, you know, and, and people don't, they just basically don't make stuff most of the time because it's just it's insurmountable. So we had been also working, and I want to hear your kind of take on this. We had been working on interface, a lot of UI, trying to make things intuitive, trying to make it browser accessible. What were the big things that you had kind of prioritized before AI came into the picture that you thought was going to solve this problem? And then how did AI kind of layer on top of that and, and change it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So where we had really begun was thinking through what is the sort of format that we're trying to create that you can present, but is not quite a presentation. And so for us, what we really prioritized was building an experience that was a writing-based experience for making a presentation. So we took a lot of inspiration from tools like Notion, where you could just uh, type on a page in a very sort of like freeing way, but then pull in all these different powerful blocks and elements of you know, multimedia and embedding things and all of that. And so we'd actually really been building this sort of like rich text editor. And we'd also really been building in more sort of mobile responsiveness. We had this idea that a presentation isn't just a thing you present live. It's also a thing that you send around ahead of the meeting for someone to read or after the meeting for people to debrief on and discuss and comment on. So we wanted it to work beautifully on a big screen when you present it on the TV, but also be something that you can consume on your phone uh, when you send it around. So a lot of that sort of like uh, responsive reading and viewing. The irony of this is what we almost ended up creating was a 
like web page builder for presentations. It had a lot of the elements of, you know, WYSIWYG creation and everything. And it was in many ways more limited than what a typical slide deck is. It wasn't about dragging rectangles around because it had to be responsive and reflowing in all these cases. Uh, and so we sort of like paired out a lot of those elements to make it simple and writing-based. Ironically, and I can't even say intentionally, this turned out to be a brilliant decision in light of AI because so much of where I, AI came along uh, is that it's this tool that can turn writing into anything and it can also write anything. So the fact that we had large language models come along means that we built this interface for a human to make a presentation like they're writing a doc. And then we basically had AI come along that can write a doc about almost anything. And so we sort of put those two pieces together. And what that looked like concretely was we actually originally launched the product uh, just about a year ago. So August, 2022, with none of the AI stuff. It was just, you know, our motto at the time was write like a doc, present like a deck. We launched on Product Hunt. It actually went better than I expected, to be honest. We did kind of win our first early adopters, people that just really bought the vision and maybe had that grievance against PowerPoint <laughs> the format along the way where they sort of bought it. And so we got our core of early adopters, people who really believed and saw the potential of what we were doing. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that we broke out beyond that initial core. People who really bought our problem space were into it, but it was very hard to take a new person and teach them what a gamma was. It was this thing that was kind of like a presentation, but it certainly didn't have all the feature parity yet. And it had these other ideas too, which if you got it, you got it, but most people didn't. They would sign up for our onboarding. They'd watch a real short video of what our product was all about. And then we'd dump them into a blank page where we would say, good luck, hope you figure it out. And you know, let's say 2% would and 98% wouldn't. So the funny thing is that where AI first kind of entered the conversation for us last fall was really trying to solve the problem of onboarding. What we wanted to say was, what if instead of you having to make your first gamma yourself, we could get AI to spit out a first gamma for you so that you would actually see the power of what we were building. And I don't think we had any inkling of how powerful that idea would be or how well AI could do the job. You know, we thought it would just be an initial rough skeleton that you could use just to sort of show you what our product could do. It would mix in kind of all the different bits. And we started working on that and working on it more and more. And the thing that we found was that it could do much better than we expected. It actually, it actually generate a full presentation and find images and sort of create layouts. It became this really powerful way of showcasing all of the sort of building blocks we built up over the previous two or three years. But then kind of what amazed us was that many people considered that a finished product. They would say, oh, you have basically made my whole uh, presentation for me. And like, yes, I'll finesse it here or there, but you've now taken this task that would have taken me, you know, like 10 or 20 hours of preparation and you've done 90% of it. Uh, that is kind of probably always the mission we wanted to achieve. If you think back of like, oh, your presentation through tomorrow, how do we solve it? But it never occurred to us that AI could solve so many of the pieces of it along the way. And now that we realize it has, it's kind of changed the whole way we think about prioritizing and planning our product because AI could be at the core of almost every bit of it. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Yeah, it's fascinating. I can relate to that so much. For us, we tried to use templates as kind of the way to get people somewhat past the blank page problem. And in fact, you know, with, with Waymark for the longest time, there basically was no concept of a blank, you know, or kind of empty starting video. You would always start with some template and there would be content in there. And then our idea was like, you use this content as inspiration and then you make it your own by putting your own content there. And you know, I think that helped relative to showing people nothing, certainly, but it was still a big hurdle that a lot of people were like, well, I don't really 
get or know how to project my content onto this, you know, template. It's it's a little tricky still. You know, similarly, we had some people that really took really took to it and and loved it, but then there was definitely a lot of people who were like, I'm still not quite getting, you know, how I'm supposed to make something with this. And it, it, interestingly for us, it was also not really about the interface. You know, I think we, I don't know if you had this experience, but we would kind of look for interface solutions to some of these problems. And then I think in retrospect, especially now that, you know, we have the AI layer, uh, it has become clear to me that it was like not so much an interface problem in many cases as just like a conceptual problem of what am I even supposed to do here? <laughs> you know, it's not that I don't know what the buttons do, but I don't know what to do writ large, right? Yeah, like, what is this for? What can I make with this? Why should I even be here? This has been a hard thing for me to grapple with as someone who's always been kind of a product manager by training and assumes that the solution to every problem is product, better product, more product, different products. People often describe Gamma as like if Notion and Canva had a baby. And when we look at both those companies, they're companies that sort of saw so much of their success through, yes, great products, but also these incredibly vast communities and marketplaces of templates. Uh, everybody who sort of like came to Notion or Canva came there because they saw someone else make something really compelling with it. And they're like, oh, I get it. I see the value. And you can think of those template libraries as these incredible assets that those companies developed, uh, often quite painstakingly over a period of years. So, you know, like, I don't know the numbers, but let's just say Canva has like 10,000 or 50,000 templates in it. And that is like a huge part of the reason why you sign up for Canva, that's a very hard advantage for a small startup like ours to overcome. We do not yet have the resources to create thousands of those things until AI comes along. And suddenly what we found was we started using AI to make our own templates. And then we're like, wait, why are we even having AI make templates? Let's just have AI make a perfectly tailored first draft for you and cut out the middleman of the template. And in doing so, hopefully also cut out the advantage that a lot of these established tools have over us in their large template libraries. So I want to dig into that in just one second, but just to give listeners who haven't probably seen the app a little bit more context on specifically what I thought was really compelling about it. Biggest thing for me right off the top was, and I tried this, I have this um, thing that I created, the AI scouting report. So I went back to my notes, which I had used before making any slides. And it was just, you know, kind of as your use case envisions, right? Write like a doc and present. That's what I was trying to do. I had my doc and, you know, all these bullet point outline uh, type content, drop it in there and say, hey, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Make this. I'd say two things really stood out against everything else that I tried. One was that the slides were, I don't know what you use this for the, the individual unit, if it's not a slide within the broader context, but the individual units they all just looked really good. Like the theme was really nice, the colors, the layout. I'm not even super aesthetically sensitive, to be honest. You know, folks on uh, the Waymark team know, you know, a hundred times more about how to make something really look good than I'll ever know. And that's honestly a big part of the reason I was kind of interested in building this sort of thing because I can't do it, you know, without tool assistance. But I can, I could definitely at this point, you know, recognize that the slides just looked beautiful and they made a you know, that sub-second impression on, does this look pro? Does it look like it's worth my time at all? I think it was really the only one that that passed that test that we demoed anyway. And then the other thing that it did that I thought was really effective was it took my raw stuff, you know, some of which was like kind of notes and some of which was kind of paragraphy and definitely not like slide ready or even particularly slide friendly. And it put that into a text format that for the most part, captured what I was trying to say without distorting it too much, 
but also put it into a format that actually looked like something you would present. Um, and again, other you know things that we tried kind of went off the rails in various ways, either like changing my story entirely, which was pretty weird to see, or just like not changing it enough and just kind of like printing out my paragraphs, you know, and then it was like, well, this, I could have copied, you know, that didn't save me much, right? If I was just going to go copy my paragraph in giant text blob form. So I thought you guys did a very nice job of striking the balance there between transforming my content, you know, so that it is more suited to this purpose of presentation, but not distorting my content too much. So that's my pitch. I don't know if you would add anything to that that you think is like the big reasons to go try the product, but those were the reasons that I found that seemed to distinguish it. Well, that was a great pitch. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the core thing we focused on. And to give a little more context on it, my first real unlock with this was like my first week using ChatGPT and seeing what people were doing with ChatGPT. And I remember people were doing all these things like uh, uh, write a story about, uh, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich getting stuck in the VCR, but in the style of biblical verse. And what was amazing about it was, first of all, just the creativity of AI and like what it can do far beyond, I think, what any of us thought. But also what was amazing was this idea of like transformation. And this whole term kind of generative AI has maybe mastered it the way in which AI is so good at transforming things from one shape to another. So this idea that you can like take this and now put it in hip hop lyrics or whatever is a neat trick. It's like a, a cool toy. But for us, the actual powerful application of it is take my sort of like written bullet points or my vague notes and turn it into like a structured, thoughtful presentation. And I think we were all blown away by how well AI can do that if you at least coax it in the right way. And so, yeah, I would say that's, a big part of our sort of secret sauce is transforming your raw notes into something that feels coherent and compelling and also visual. That's a big part of it. We have kind of a lot of the visual building blocks that we can drop this into. The other part of it, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well, is not just that first generation of spit out a presentation for me and it's done, but helping me edit and refine as I go. We've also put a lot of work into giving you alternatives or letting you try out different variants on top of where you started to iterate your way towards the right kind of visual output. Yeah, I think that's a really compelling paradigm as well. You know, you said kind of, hey, I can do this well if you coax it the right way. I'd love to get a little bit more into how you do that. And I can you know, tell you a little bit about Waymark side too. Uh, kind of want to just compare notes because I think you're totally right that transforming one thing into another is, at least with the current quality of models, like often where a huge amount of the value is, as opposed to like generating, you know, totally new stuff. If I had asked it to, write my AI scouting report for me, that would have been useless. But having notes and being able to transform it, that is useful. And the, the models can really do a nice job on that. Ultimately, you're producing something that's highly visual. It's got layout. It's got image content uh, along with the text content. It's got structure in terms of bullet points. So it has all of this kind of structure. How do you think about representing that structure for the AI, like obviously folks who listen to the show know enough about this, that whatever I dropped into the, the tool is combined with like some instructions, maybe some fine tuned model, like a lot of things there, but you also have to tell the AI, like this is kind of the space that you can project into. So how do you think about kind of describing that space and finding the, the happy medium between, you know, you want to have a, a kind of simple notation, doesn't take up too many tokens, like hopefully the AI can, you know, can rock it. But it also can't be too simple because you do have like a pretty rich grammar, so to speak, that you ultimately output to. I'd love to hear how you've approached that. 
Yeah, this was, I would say, the hardest problem for us to get this off the ground from sort of the idea stage to the reality. We tried so many things. We started with just plain text, and true enough, it can generate plain text with like bullets in it. But then we said, ah, but it needs to have visuals and layout. And so we went down a whole path of trying to just do everything through sort of like JSON. You know, let's, let's represent this as structured data. I want to have a timeline that's going to have three steps in it, and these are the things in those steps. And that we frustratingly got to the point of working like 85% well. It would work some of the time, then you get your curly braces and your semicolons, put it up in the wrong place, and it would all fall apart. And we cycle through, oh, like let's try YAML instead. Let's, let's go through this, let's go through that. Or let's try just doing text and then generating the formats. We even explored thinking through more of the PowerPoint model, which is just like, draw me this. I need a rectangle here and a rectangle there. And that's where the AI really falls down because uh, even though the AI seems like it can see, it really can't. It just is getting text input and output. And so generating things on a grid almost never goes well. I remember trying to get it to draw a, a pyramid shape, like three levels of a pyramid, like you would see on a slide deck. And it could not draw a pyramid of triangles to save its life. <laughs> and so actually the thing we ended up hitting on, which kind of ties to our whole story where we came from, was HTML. I think we realized that we had to sort of work in a format that the model itself knew really well. And these models are trained by scraping the web all over the place. And so they've just seen huge amounts of HTML and stuff that looks like it. And I kind of alluded to, we had already built our presentation builder through the lens of like website creation. So like mobile, responsive, kind of made up of these different blocks that stack on top of each other. And so we realized sort of the big unlock was, could we actually generate the sort of input and output as HTML and then convert that HTML into our format? And that had a lot of benefits in terms of there's a lot we didn't have to teach the AI at all because it already knew how to make stuff bold or how to make things into a table or how to make bullet points. That all kind of came for free in its training data. And then we could just teach it the specific kind of tags and custom elements that are unique to us. And even more where it's come in handy is when it comes to editing and refining, we can feed back our data kind of in that format and let it kind of riff on it. You know, we basically prompt it to say, you are the world's best web designer. You have a gift for writing like clean structure HTML. Your, your client gave you this HTML, doesn't do quite what it's supposed to do. Uh, they want you to change this thing about it. And then we can apply tweaks on top of that. And that turned out to be the lingua franca that really made AI powerful at doing this. There's certainly some commonalities with Waymark where I just was kind of in pursuit of the most natural seeming, all, you know, obviously text only representation that I could come up with that still kind of deterministically, you know, could be rehydrated back into the full video form, right? So we, we kind of said, this is the, the format that the AI has to generate. And if it generates in this format, then, you know, again, we can map that back onto the full visual video space. And for us, it did get pretty simple in the end, partly because our templates are pretty well formed. So, you know, you're not in general, like choosing specific locations or whatever, like that's kind of all baked in on some level to the template. So you're really mostly focused on just the content, you know, what's the copy going to be, what are the images going to be, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like you have kind of even more degrees of freedom, but as you say, you, you can't give it like infinite degrees of freedom. You presumably are not like, you're probably not giving it the, the level of freedom to be like how many pixels something is, you know, from the top or from the left, right? So, so do you have like a vocabulary that's like a set of classes that it can apply that are kind of semantic, like left side, tall, right side, right upper corner, 
these kind of, I imagine a vocabulary here. We do. Yeah. We have very structural elements and, and they all correspond to actually things in our interface. You know, that's kind of what let us add this AI layer on top is that we built all of these kind of semantic building blocks that were things like side-by-side -side layout or, you know, a table or columns or timeline or whatever it was. We had those building blocks. And so then we basically teach the AI using a lot of our precious tokens every prompt. Here are the building blocks you're, you're allowed to use. Here are examples of how they work. Now, see what you can do with this prompt. So what's the model journey that you've been on? You're talking about prompting, you know, with a pretty detailed instructions, which suggests maybe not fine-tuning. So you're able to use an off-the-shelf commercial model with a developed prompt? Generally, the GPT models from OpenAI, they have so far been the leaders for us. Although we are now at a scale and a point where I think we're going to start shifting back towards something like fine-tuning or, or maybe even training our own models. We haven't really made a decision there. But when we were getting started, we didn't have a huge vein of data to begin with. You know, we were starting from scratch. And so uh, for us, like few-shot prompting, which is a few examples, worked a lot better than trying to fine-tune. We also uh, happened to be launching earlier this year, right at the time that OpenAI made the jump from GPT-3 to GPT-3.5, which which totally changed the interface, also totally changed the cost curve by making everything 10 times cheaper. And there was no fine-tuning on it. And so in some ways it made the decision for us. It's like, is fine-tuning really gonna be 10 times more effective for us? The answer then was no, but something I'm really keenly watching is the evolution of open source models and of different foundation model providers. And so I think the story is actually about to invert. I think we're about to be able to take now this huge number of things we've sort of generated as input to say, okay, how can we actually train our own custom model and start to use that scale as an advantage? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. Obviously, everybody's you know watching the open source developments and you know we're now in the Llama 2 phase of history in the open source world. I'd love to hear more about how you think about these trade-offs. You know, people all the time are like, this kind of line of thinking, I guess, went mainstream with the no moats, you know, Google memo. I think that, you know, article certainly got a lot right about all the great things going on in open source. I also say got some things wrong in terms of like, I still definitely think there are some moats. But from an individual, you know, application developer standpoint, 3.5, as you noted, is cheap, it is fast, and it is scalable. You know, they have obviously very nice parallelizability uh, for you, you know, where you and you only obviously get charged for what you are using in terms of tokens. You know, what's the other side of that look like for you? And, and what would be the reasons to go toward the open source? Like, where is 3.5 not doing it for you? Let's start there. What would you hope to make better? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple areas or a couple dimensions that you could think of. One of them is just overall intelligence. So GPT 3.5 is remarkable, certainly. But GPT 4 is still better. Uh, it's just sort of like hugely expensive and slow for what it does. And so the dream is, can you get GPT 4 level performance while still getting all those qualities you named in 3.5? And I don't know if we're there yet with any of the open source models that I've seen, but I think fine tuning is one path for how to get there. I think the other thing is that GPT 3.5 is really trained to be a chatbot. It really wants to be a helpful chatbot. And uh, many things in life do not fit the uh, schema of being a helpful chatbot, including generating an entire uh, presentation. And so I think this is where the opportunity is to actually take other models in a different direction and have full control over that experience. And so for us, that might mean training it for more specialized tasks, but it also might just mean really pushing the use case of sort of like document generation and editing beyond what chat type tools are made for. 
But yeah, I'm also curious for your experience on this and how you would sort of like weigh the different models and think about the open source stuff. I'm not sure. Right now, we are still using a fine-tuned OpenAI model, very much like you kind of considering, is it time to move on to something else? Our approach has historically been not too focused on the cost because we do have very high value users. I think this is you know kind of just a more result of how we've gone to market and the fact that we've sold to you know big companies. So you could with a product like ours up, you know, it's probably similar with yours, right? You could go directly to users. We've done some of that historically. But we've actually found the most business success going to larger organizations that need to scale this sort of video production and, and selling to them on like a license basis. With that, our emphasis has always been maximize quality for them. You know, the AI, you know, in terms of the overall revenue and cost structure is not that big of a deal. So, you know, we've never shied away from kind of paying, you know, top dollar for tokens. But I'm now getting to the point where I'm like, yeah, maybe this fine-tuned model could soon be eclipsed by something else. And maybe, you know, maybe it's not necessarily eclipsed in terms of like overall quality of output, but maybe latency, maybe cost, not because we're trying to save costs, but maybe we want to, what if we could generate multiple things at a time, you know, and, and now instead of one, you get to look at three different things or whatever. So it just feels like there's a lot of possibility. 3.5 actually is one of the things that I've been considering. I don't think it would probably work super well if we had a hard-coded, you know, like single prompt to rule them all. I think we would have a hard time matching our fine-tuned model. And I haven't proven this yet, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that if we did a sort of dynamic prompt where, you know, we're bringing in more relevant examples for it to borrow from that we might get there. I haven't really considered anything specific to the chat modality. What, are you seeing like specific weird behavior from the, that like is grounded in the chat nature of the thing that is causing you trouble? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, what's funny is, you know, we had this whole part of our uh, product we didn't talk about as much where in Gamma, once you generated your uh, presentation, you can say, I want to work on, uh, we call them cards, not slides. That's just us trying to be sort of the uh, anti-PowerPoint and therefore not necessarily borrow all the same language, but you can think of it as a slide. So I'm going off and I'm editing slide three and I say, oh, I want you to uh, change the layout of this. I want you to make it look more visual or make this more concise, or I want you to translate this into Spanish or whatever it is. You can basically talk to your card and transform it. That's kind of, in my opinion, the coolest part of our product. Um, although it's also the trickiest one to get right because you mentioned degrees of freedom. There's just so many degrees of freedom of what you can even ask for, what your content looks like, where it can go. And so it really doesn't work 100% of the time. If I'm being honest, I think it works well about half the time. And the other half, it doesn't. There's multiple reasons why it doesn't work well that other half. But one of the reasons is that we've sort of co-opted the chat interface to power this. And sometimes the chat interface just wants to be so helpful, it won't actually follow your instructions. It just wants to start chatting with you and being a friend. And so I think that's a place where uh, fine-tuning or just using open source models that aren't pushed in this direction can be really useful for us. Yeah, that's kind of uh, related to the recent GPT-4 is getting worse brief news cycle where as it kind of later became clear, the authors had run this coding benchmark and what they didn't account for was the fact that with the recent update, the model GPT-4 started returning basically just a markdown wrapper around the code and they 
we're just, you know, executing the benchmark in kind of the, you know, programmatic way that benchmarks are often executed at our peril, I, I would, you know, contend. And, you know, then they're like, well, oh, this code doesn't even execute, right? It's got syntax errors in it. What a terrible regression. When you look at it and you're like, oh, well, it's, it is actually responding pretty sensibly. I mean, it feels like that's something you should be able to get under control, but it sounds like you're seeing more kind of almost opinionated kind of responses where it's like, it's not just that it's a syntax thing, but it's like trying to take you in a different direction or like suggest something else. Like what are those behaviors that you're, that you're seeing that you kind of haven't been able to corral? Yeah. Uh, one, one version of this that we've encountered is uh, you'll be working on, you know, a slide about rock music and you'll say, I want a picture of a panda for this. And it'll say back to you, I don't think a panda is a good idea. I think you want a picture of a guitar instead. <laughs> like, no, I want the panda. Like I'm in charge. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's going to be, um, you know, when the, when the co-pilot pushes back, it's going to be a major phenomenon across a lot of different experiences in the years to come. Um, I agree with you, by the way, that I think the edit with AI experience is one of the coolest aspects of the product. Believe it or not, I didn't even get that far in my initial demo. But in preparing for this conversation, I went back and spent a little bit more time with it. And I thought that was really something that we could take some inspiration from also. We kind of have two layers where, you know, first it's like, tell us what video you want, we'll make it for you. Boom. Then you have your lower level controls where you can go, you know, change any of the copy and tinker with colors and, you know, swap out images and crop and whatever. A lot of interface there. But I do think we stand to improve the product still with an intermediate layer as well. I'm not exactly sure what our version of, of what you have would be. At a minimum, I think just like, asking the AI to just make changes, even if it's just like operating on the whole video, you know, I do think there's, there's room for kind of more verbal, you know, iteration before you have to get into that nitty gritty of the UI. So I did take inspiration from that. I thought it was really nice. The other thing I thought was really good. I'd love to hear, you know, what you've learned from this or kind of what the, you said, like it, you know, it only works half the time. That may be an actual quantified number. Cause I also thought it was really smart. And I really don't know why more products don't do this. When you do the chat with AI, the product then shows you back original and suggested update. And then you can kind of click back and forth and be like, you know, before, after, before, after, which one do I want? And presumably that is a really good feedback signal for you, which maybe you're not even really fully able to take advantage of yet. As <laughs> you have your eye on fine tuning, I imagine that is a, um, you know, a real source of you know, intelligence about what people actually want. Totally. This was inspired by Midjourney, which I think is still maybe the most impressive AI product I've ever seen, despite it's, in my opinion, enormously frustrating interface. But what strikes me kind of observing their product development is that so much of it seems tuned toward gathering the data that you need to make the system better over time. And so their product's all about generating variations, upscaling the ones you want, and even like liking different parts of it all in the interest of kind of creating that flywheel. And so it's funny because the landscape of how to even use that data is not fully formed. We don't quite know how it will be incorporated. But if you don't have that compass in the first place, you just have no idea where you're going, where to even focus your efforts. Do you use any system right now for kind of prompt, you know, testing, A-B testing? I use human loop in some of my activity for stuff like that. But do you have a tool that is, you know, obviously a lot of people have just built their own homegrown stuff. But have you guys homegrown uh, DIY, that kind of stuff? Or have you found any tools that help wrangle this problem? 
So far, it's pretty much homegrown, strictly for prompt evaluation. Like we built our own kind of little studio for editing a prompt and seeing how it works on different examples. But it really feels like we're in the stone ages of this kind of technology. If I consider how high stakes these prompts are to our business, it, it feels like the equivalent of like running a huge software code base with no automated tests in place and just kind of like going based on vibes to know if the stuff you're changing is making any improvements. And maybe worth mentioning, uh, my background, a lot of our team's background at Gamma is from a company called Optimizely, which basically tried to make A-B testing a like widely practiced practice across kind of marketing and software development. And so that mindset of like gradual rollouts, A-B testing measurement is like deeply in our DNA. We've looked for ways to incorporate it, but the tech just isn't there yet on the AI side. And I'm looking forward to seeing what does come out in this space over the next couple months to make this process better. Because it's ripe for, I wouldn't even say disruption, but you know, just first mile innovation. I definitely check out Human Loop. We had um, CEO Reza Habib on the show some episodes back and I think they are building some pretty good infrastructure that is specifically focused on app developers as the target customer. Not to be uh, doing BD live on the, the show here, but I, I think that would be worth a, a look. Going back to just the fine-tuning thing for a second, if you were going to go fine-tuning open source, right? Still with OpenAI, the reason we have continued to use that fine-tuning is it also has very nice properties around you know, just pay for what you use. You don't have to have like dedicated resources. You know, they kind of handle the auto scaling for you and they seem to do a very nice job of it, which is much appreciated. When I've looked into what would it take for us to really bring to production a fine-tuned model, actually doing the fine-tuning at this point, I think would work. You know, even I would have said that probably as of the like Mosaic um, 7B release from maybe, you know, a month and a half ago or whatever. That seemed to be the moment where it was like, okay, this is probably going to work for our use case now. Putting that into production, having inference that auto scales, you know, I'm a big believer in the vision of like the hugging face um, inference endpoints. You know, I've looked at like Replicate, even Mosaic's service, but like the auto scale up, scale down, if you have any sort of bursty workload, which we do, and maybe, I don't know if that's a problem for you, but we do have quite bursty workloads where it'll be like, even just as simple as a demo, you know, we work with these big companies, now everybody's together, now they're all doing it at one time. Uh, we also have some things where we process images for users and that, because like the images are, you know, many per user, we're often kind of kicking off, like, can we process, you know, a hundred or a few hundred images at a time? And we want to return that as quickly as possible. So I haven't been able to get over the hump that it would be worth it for us at this point to go with that open source approach just because it seems like the inference and the auto scaling and all that stuff is like not quite there yet either. What's your outlook on, on all that? Yeah. I mean, I think you're generally right. And this is one of the factors that has held us back from going all in on AI image generation. Um, we do have a lot of uh, images in our product, but we've mostly held off from using AI to generate them. I mean, the biggest reason for that is mostly that they look like crap most of the time, although that is rapidly changing and the, the quality is improving. But, you know, for us, it's generally open source models that are the leading ones in image generation, at least the ones that are available and so solving that problem. I'll do some BD back on you, though, which is uh, we're using a system called Base10 that I think actually solves a lot of the issues you brought up pretty well, which is they both integrate fine-tuning into their platform, so you can just kind of upload a lot of input-output examples. And they do like pretty fancy auto scaling where you just figure out what kind of systems you run, 
you can handle bursty traffic and kind of bring up and down servers as needed. And we're actually about to roll out our own AI image generation serving powered by them. And I think it's going to work pretty well. So hopefully by the time this podcast is out, people will be able to try it. So that's, that gives me some insight because I, I noticed that at least as far as my experience seemed to be, I didn't detect any generated images in what came back. It seemed to be all searching through you know existing libraries. And so I guess the barrier to that primarily, as you said, is that they just haven't looked that good until recently. Is it now going to be stable diffusion Excel that's getting you over the hump into moving into product? Yeah, it's a, a lot of these things to me come down to thresholds where it's like, it's not good enough until it is. And then when it is, you know, it goes super wide, super quick. And it passes so fast from being not good enough to good enough. Uh, image generation is interesting because I feel like we are right on that line. Actually, mid-journey already passed, I would say, but open source models just crossed that line. It's not clear they'll stop. I think they're going to keep on going and become pretty breathtaking and incredible as well. Video generation feels like it's in a similar place. And I'm not sure what new modalities are coming after that, but as sort of a developer of an AI-enabled product, what it feels like we're doing is just trying to put ourselves in a position to benefit from these sudden like sparks of innovation happening all around the ecosystem. Like literally, how can I have a hole to put cool images in so that when cool images are ready, I can just flip it on. And there are, it's hard to even think about like a year ahead, what are all those new opportunities that are gonna be emerging that we can take advantage of? 3D models, voice, all these things. Like it's, it's almost staggering to think of all the places AI can plug in. Yeah, there've been some really incredible voice releases just in the last week or so as well, where I listened to um, shout out to the AI breakdown, uh, which we we actually did a, a feed swap with uh, not too long ago and shared one of their episodes. But he did just did one where he had a cloned voice from Eleven Labs read an essay in his voice, and it was insanely good. Like I literally could barely tell. And if he hadn't specifically called it out, even with him saying, "Now I'm going to go to the AI voice." And then the AI voice takes over. It was like, wait, that's the AI voice? Like you, that was the switch? It, I mean, it's crazy. And PlayHT just dropped another one too in the last day or two that is looking or sounding phenomenal. So yeah, it's it's wild. Do you think that this, as you move to AI image generation, is that a complement to the existing libraries? You know, does it become kind of your primary go-to? Because there's a whole ball of wax too, as you, you know, you know perfectly well around how do you select images out of a library? I thought you guys did a nice job of that, certainly relative to most things I've seen, but it does remain a challenge to like figure out, you know, what out of, you know, for example, Shutterstock's, you know, hundreds of millions of images, like actually, you know, not just make some conceptual sense, but actually like look the part, very tough. It's a really hard one. And I think we're too early to say, I think we are still going to rely on image libraries early on because we just know there's some level of quality bar on those and AI images are still uneven. They still feel like a toy much of the time and our aspiration not to just be a toy, but to be something much more than that. But at the same time, there's a level of magic to them and also a level of control. Particularly thinking about a presentation, you know, we want to be tackling problems like, I want to have like 12 images throughout my presentation and they should all be stylistically in color coordinated. Uh, that's a problem that AI images will go from being bad at to good at in the space of months. <laughs> it's just a matter of us trying to stay on board while they do. So we take a, a somewhat different approach on this as well. Most of the products out there, you know, have kind of just embraced the AI image generation kind of come what may, right? If it doesn't look good, you know, whatever, hey, we're in this moment, it's cool, whatever, we'll just do it. That seems to be the prevailing approach. I think for pretty similar reasons, our companies have not rushed in on that as much and have kind of said, 
you know, if the quality's not there, in our case, like a lot of the videos get put on TV as TV commercials. We're just like, people are not going to want to put this on TV. And for you, you know, people are not going to want to stand up in front of a, an audience that matters to them and present this, right? So if, if it doesn't hit that bar, then it maybe doesn't work. The best approach that we've taken so far has been, well, I guess it's complicated. There's a few, but we like to use our, our users' own images wherever possible. We've had a lot of success with the Blip family of models, which is out of Salesforce, to try to figure out which of the images that they have would make the most sense here. And then we've also had a lot of luck with Shutterstock's computer vision API when we want to supplement their assets with other assets. I don't know if you've used that, but it's actually quite good at bringing you back kind of visually similar. You'll have, a, you'll have some nuances there because visually similar can return things that are not content similar. But we found, I think, a good way to, to kind of deal with that just by also looking at the metadata of the image, which you know, tells you what the content is. So once you apply the computer vision side to get things that look the part and then kind of filter you know, for things that actually relevant, you know, appropriate content-wise, you end up in a pretty good spot. And that has, you know, but you do need, in our case, we have user images that we can put into the computer vision to kind of expand on their, you know, we, we call it their universe of libraries because it starts with their, you know, cluster, but then we kind of try to, to build that out. You kind of said strategically, you are trying to put yourself in position to benefit from ongoing advancements. That's like a mantra for me too. You know, the waterline is always rising. What are your main priorities right now that um, you're, you're building toward? Yeah, so we talked a lot about kind of the sort of AI portions of our priorities. I think the other one is really anchoring back with our origin story is thinking about the medium and the format itself. So how do we make Gamma the best way to present your ideas across a range of different settings? So some part of that is that to really go up against these titans like PowerPoint, you just have to have a bunch of other features to do that well. You know, everything like export this as a PDF or, you know, add speaker notes or all those things. But actually, the kind of most surprising opportunity that we're pursuing in the sense that I didn't really see it coming when we began was the number of people that use our product to make a website um, or a web page or something that is like their digital face on the internet. I think I mentioned that what we accidentally created was a website builder for slides, and it turns out it's also a great website builder for websites, um, in part because it doesn't have all of the complexity of a big, complicated website builder. It's write like a doc and then share like a website is kind of the promise. And so we've actually been pulled by our users in the direction of doing that. And so we're in the process of letting you support just publishing these gammas to your own custom domain. And along with that comes, you know, like let's set up the rest of the parts of the website. I want this to have a header and a footer and forms on it and all those things. And so we are rapidly adding those kind of capabilities. And it's something that raises a lot of hard strategic questions for us. It's hard to be a great presentation tool and a great website builder and a great document editor all at the same time. Although AI makes it easier than you might think. I think it really changes a lot of our assumptions about how a company competes in different spaces. But for us, what that really means is we are trying to sort of forge our own path between these different media. We want to make a gamma a very unique thing that is unlike what any other company creates, but hopefully well-suited to a lot of people's tasks. And so a lot of what we're doing is just trying to figure out all the different design details of how to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. So I was going to ask also about how you think about competing against these giants, right? Because I mean, the 
products that you're taking on in being the anti PowerPoint or you know the anti uh, by extension maybe the anti Google Slides, you know whatever deficiencies they have in terms of user experience, they certainly have you know major advantages in terms of familiarity and just general distribution. So how do you think about that? I mean, it seems like, you know, if you were going to go out and try to raise money, I'm sure that, you know, the number one question would be like, what's going to happen when Microsoft rolls out their AI slide maker? You know, do you think it's just going to continue to not be that awesome? Or like, you kind of hinted at maybe like, we want to make different stuff, like, presumably, they're going to continue to make slides in their way. So how do you think about kind of carving out a is it carving out a space? Is it just being better at the core thing? Like, what's what's the strategy for taking on these giants? It's a good question because it's one that keeps me up at night, certainly thinking about where these giants will evolve. You know, our main strategy has always been let's carve our own path. Even before AI, that was it. It's, we don't want to directly compete head on with these tools, in part because they're very good at what they do. We would really like to do something different and use AI to help us do something different. Uh, that said, every month that goes by without Google Slides AI and PowerPoint AI actually being released, is another month that I find the temptation of, well, maybe we should compete head on now. I don't know. I think the jury is still out on how good these tools will be and also how accessible they'll be to different audiences. You know, I think everyone's going to focus on their core. And for, for Microsoft, that core is very much the sort of like big enterprise-y like work setting. And so I don't know how well, for example, the small business will be served by what they're building or how well education will be served. I, I truly don't know. And so I'm I'm eagerly awaiting where they take it. Uh, I think that Microsoft in particular is a pretty fierce competitor. They are like sort of the big oil tanker that doesn't turn quickly, but when they are, they just relentlessly move. And so our best bet as a startup is just to be nimble and try to carve our own path and also always stay ahead doing something a little bit different than what those giants are doing. The website market is a bit different though, where it certainly has incumbents, but it doesn't have any incumbents on quite that scale. And so far, none of the incumbents in this space have really shown that much interest or savvy in deploying AI. And so it's also a place we're looking of like, maybe this is even the bigger opportunity to go after. And I think we'll have to see. You know, this has been obviously a hot topic, right? Of has Google lost its ability to ship or why, why aren't, you know, you can never change Gmail. And certainly they're starting to ship stuff. But I would say like the writing assistant experience that I have in Gmail is still not actually useful in part because mystifyingly to me, they don't give you like the freedom to actually direct the AI. I don't know if you've used this particular interface, but you have like a few modes of change that they allow, like shorten it, elaborate it, whatever. But it, it, it never allows you to say like, do this to it, which is just a kind of strange gap to me. You know, enterprises are definitely not ignoring this and they are shipping stuff. But then other times you see things like that from Gmail and you're like, that seems pretty half-baked, <laughs> you know? Do you feel like this is just a such a different discipline that it's actually, you know, going to be hard for these organizations? Or, you know, do you think that they're on the verge of figuring it out? Or like, what do you make of what we've seen so far from big companies rushing to ship AI products? You know, I used to work at Microsoft. And so I think I have some sense of how these companies operate internally. And I think when you're not inside them, it's easy to underestimate the sheer scale of the challenges that they face operating at the scale they do. Uh, many of these products like Gmail and even like Google Slides have hundreds of millions of users in a wide variety of circumstances. All of them have their own different contracts with how they use your product. Um, there are different languages that they speak. There are different data privacy and sensitivity requirements. 
And so I don't envy the people who are trying to juggle all of those different requirements and stakeholders when making decisions. The sheer number of humans you have to convince internally to make even a relatively low risk change is small. And AI presents a huge number of risks that we're only beginning to understand from hallucination and misleading people to like misuse and abuse. And so I think these companies' hands are just incredibly tied, um, much more so than startups are. And so for them, I think even though they feel a lot of urgency internally, in many cases, their best bets is to let startups establish patterns, let smaller companies establish patterns, and then they can follow and incorporate those over time. And they have enough of a distribution advantage that they won't be doomed by doing that. They will take their time and get it right, and they will do it. And so I think often to those of us who are in these fast-paced environments, their behavior looks odd, but it's actually perfectly uh, rational and understandable, even where they're coming from. And I think what it means is that if you want to be on the cutting edge of where AI is, you almost have to be outside those ecosystems. And that will give you a very good sense of what will be in tools like PowerPoint in one or two years. One theory I've been kind of kicking around is the idea that these super complicated, over-featured, over-built, you know, I can't find what I want in this system type of systems. And as you mentioned too, like the language complexity, I mean, the, the complexity certainly is vast. You could kind of tell two, you know, opposing stories. One would be, all that complexity makes it hard to apply AI because, you know, it's just just even compounding the complexity. The other story would be like, maybe the AI can kind of smooth over all that complexity somehow by, you know, kind of reducing it all back to like, hey, now you can just, you know, engage with natural language and the AI will be the one that has to deal with all that complexity. Uh, which way do you think that that, obviously it could be contextually dependent, but you know, which of those stories do you ultimately believe in kind of coming to predominate? So far, it feels like the tools that have been successful with AI are the ones that have been able to pick off like narrow and specific workflows and carefully craft, you know, prompts and examples to be able to tackle those. But I would be a fool if I claimed that I could predict where these models are evolving, even over the course of a year. And if anything, the trend in AI has been towards surprising generalization of abilities. It used to be that you had one model for translation and one model for search and one model for summarization. And now we see these sort of God models that can do it all. And I think that may only accelerate. And so I, I wouldn't even dare predict how this story is going to evolve. Well, your app is Gamma. It's at gamma.app. And it's a, it's a fun, for my money, the market-leading AI card uh, presentation maker today. So great work on it. Keep it up. Anything else you want to make sure we cover before we break? No, thanks so much. It was great chatting. Big fan of the podcast and uh, appreciate the plug. Thank you very much. Well, again, keep up the good work. John Narona from Gamma, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution.